Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. As a reminder, you're welcome to join us and participate in the show by going to geeklab.ninja. There, you can participate in the chat. You don't have to sign up for an account. You can do it uh, on parachutelive.tv just as a guest. Or if you go to geeklab.ninja, you can register for an account. That gets you access to the video and audio platform Jitsi. You can participate in the chat, ask your questions, answer questions should it come up. Our first email this hour comes in from Jay. Jay writes in and says, hey, I just wanted to make you aware of a powerful device called Mbox Viewer. It's a small but powerful app for viewing Mbox files. Now, this comes in in responses to Lucas a few days or uh, uh, episode ago. Uh, Lucas wrote in and said, hey, I want to be able to take my Google mailbox with me. I'm moving providers. I'm trying to de-Googleify my life. The problem is Google's export functionality has an Mbox file, which uses, of course, Google's proprietary labels. Is there any way I can import that into an IM, uh, like a regular SMTP IMAP setup? And I didn't have an answer for Lucas, but thanks to Jay, now we do. And so the project is called Mbox Viewer. It's made by Enam. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But essentially, the project supports files uh, larger than four gigabytes. So it doesn't matter how large your inbox file is. It supports exporting all of your attachments. It supports exporting the individual files uh, in EML format or exporting all of the emails as individual EML. So that would be very similar to akin as to how you would do it in a program like Thunderbird, where you're just going to get a folder full of a bunch of .eml files. It uh, and and so anyway, so this this is a great answer to this to this problem, and so you can learn more at GitHub.com slash Enam slash Mbox Viewer. But if you're looking to de-Googleify your life, if you're looking to move from Google to another platform, this could potentially be a tool that would allow you to do that. Now I want to stop here and say this show works because of you, the community, because. You guys participate. And so I'll give another plug for the email live at asknoahshow.com. If you participate in that way, it does a couple of things. First of all, it allows your email to get categorized and sorted so that when we get a number of the same requests or a number of the same people asking for a specific type of content, we design a main segment around there. We bring the industry experts on that will help us execute a segment. That's on that. And that's a huge thanks to you for participating in this. But the other way that this works is when you ask a question, I'm just not always going to know the answer, right? I'm just, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the end all be all when it comes to Linux knowledge. But you know what? I have a team around me of people that really do understand, uh, the ins and outs. And so even if I'm not an expert on a particular subject, oftentimes there's some member of my team that is. And so we're able to get you the answer that way. And when all of that fails, we still have you, the community. And so a huge thanks to Jay for answering Lucas's question. And I'm glad that our show was the way that we were able to do that. 
Our second email comes in from Gary. Gary writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm getting a general I.O. error with LibreOffice and Vert Manager slash KVM when opening files mounted on TrueNAS Core with NFS version 3. It used to work fine until I went from 1804 to 2004 and FreeNAS to TrueNAS Core. I was thinking perhaps it was AppArmor, and I began tinkering with it on Ubuntu Mate 2004. I broke the OS and tried out Kubuntu 2004. I have most of the DIRs copied to my home directory on FreeNAS. I have a minimal boot drive. The only two apps I've found to have a problem are LibreOffice and VertManager slash KVM. If I copy the file to a local DIR with the same permissions, it opens just fine. Any thoughts or ideas would be appreciated. I just can't figure this one out, Gary. So my usual troubleshooting when it comes to FreeNAS or TrueNAS Core permissions goes something like this. There are a couple of different places that you need to set the permissions, and I I start from the largest and work my way in. So from the from TrueNAS Core, I, I usually will start at the data set itself, and there's a set of permissions there. Now it's important. In this, when you go into the data set and you go to change the permissions, set them to whatever it is you desire them to be. And if you're at the top directory uh, of the data set that you're working on, you also want to check, apply this to all child data sets. And that'll apply it to any of the subdirectories that are below that data set. Um, And start there with uh, the, the data set. And then after you're done with that, I'd go into the NFS sharing portion. And there's another place that you can set permissions. Now, uh, that gets infinitely more complex when it's Samba. With NFS, I think it's fairly straightforward if memory serves correctly. Um, but that would be my start is kind of reset all of those and see if that doesn't get you there before you dig any further. Um, the One of the nice things about FreeNAS and one of the things I like about it the data and the and the configuration are really two entirely separate things. So there's nothing stopping you from even reinstalling TrueNAS Core and then just importing your data set and setting the permissions up the way you want. You should almost certainly be good to go that way. Um, but that would be my my advice to you. Check that out. And of course, if there's somebody in the audience, please write in live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to take your questions uh, or your answers that way. By the way, we have a new bot. This comes to us as a feature of the Geek Lab, thanks to Sleuth in the chat room. And so the way the bot works is it's questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. You can DM that bot or you can just at sign it in the Geek Lab. That'll put the question right here in front of my face and I'll try and answer it for you. Or if you have information or the answer to a question, we can use that tool that way and get the answer out right away. Our second e- or third email rather comes in from Vladimir. Vladimir writes in and says, hi, Noah, I'm giving Matrix a try via EMS. So far, so good. I've read on Matrix.org on the FAQs that at this time, there is no way to log into other home servers with an existing ID and password. So what would happen if Linux Delta servers go offline? As always, thanks for all you do for the community. Thanks, Vladimir. So a couple of things there. First of all, when he says EMS, he's talking about um, element matrix services. And so this is a hosted way that you can use matrix you can simply uh go over to element.io sign up for a plan there it's dirt dirt cheap i think it's two dollars per user per month something like that and you can sign up for a plan and you can they host the server for you and then you connect with your client so at the moment uh element matrix is a server client relationship matrix server is known as synapse there are other ones out there but that's the main one and the client is element and there are others out there but Element is the main one. And so at the moment, you have to have access to a server and the client then connects and chat works, right? What you're talking about is account portability. And account portability is I am right now kernel Linux colon LinuxDelta.com because I'm on the Linux Delta server. 
If tomorrow I wanted to move over to Noah's home server, I might set up Noah's home server and someday account portability is going to allow me to move my kernel Linux colon Linux Delta account over to kernel Linux colon Noah's home server. And all my chats and all my information and all of that is just going to seamlessly move over there. We're not there yet, but it is planned. And so much like the way that X works, where you have a server and client relationship, but it's all running on the same box, this is eventually what Matrix is going to skate to. And this is very exciting. So this is going to come in the form of Dendrite, which is a alternative matrix server, not Synapse, which is written in Python. Dendrite is a matrix server written in Go. And so it's a more performant server. It's a, it's, it's a faster server. And it's really how they would have done uh, a matrix server had they started from scratch and said, here's the best way that we can understand to build a matrix server. That wasn't what Synapse was. Synapse was really written as a way to, to showcase what Matrix could do. And the reason that account portability and Dendrite are so closely tied, because account portability is going to come in Dendrite. And one of the main reasons that they want to do that is they're going to create a monolithic client. Now, what is a monolithic client and how does that, how does that relate to account portability? Well, at some point in the near future, when you go to download Element out of the Google Play Store and you download it onto your phone, what won't, what will be completely transparent to you, the user is along with element is going to come a tiny little home server that will be running Dendrite. And what that's going to enable you to do is if you and a buddy each download the element app, you guys can message each other and you don't need a home server. You don't need to set up a server and you don't have to set that up and then configure the client to connect and do all the things. You just download the monolithic client and start chatting. When you go into a different device, you can take that account with you. And that's where the account portability comes in. Now, again, we're not there yet, but it is planned. If today you wanted to do that, like let's say you signed up for an account at Linux Delta and now you write in this question and Noah gives you this answer about account portability is coming, but it's not here yet. And you say, you know what? I don't trust that guy. And I don't trust his his server on LinuxDelta.com. I'm gonna, I, I, just, I, gotta, I gotta go. But now I have this problem because... I took his word and I signed up for this account and all of my chats are here and all these people I'm talking with. Now, what do I do? Well, there's a couple of things. One of the one thing that you can do today is there is a matrix migration tool and it's available at ems.element.io slash tool slash matrix dash migration. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.snoshow.com. But what this allows you to do is it's a clever little tool that you sign up for Vladimir colon Vladimir's home server.com. And you log into the element migration, or excuse me, the matrix migration tool, and you tell the migration tool, hey, I used to be Vladimir colon LinuxDelta.com. Now I want to be Vladimir colon Vladimir's home server. And what it's going to do is it's going to invite Vladimir's at Vladimir's home server. It's going to invite that user to all of the chats that your Vladimir colon LinuxDelta account is currently in. Then it will remove you from all the Vladimir colon LinuxDelta.com chats and thus your account will be effectively moved over right now you've not really moved an account over really what you've done is created a new account and invited it to all of the same chats but because a matrix is federated meaning that a copy of that chat can exist on both the linux delta server as well as vladimir server and because you can have multiple participants in any given chat because at the end of the day that's all it is a chat that there's nothing stopping you from from skinning the cat a different way so to speak Right now, a couple of things there. First, I would tell you that 
uh, you don't actually need a migration tool to do this. I do this all the time. I have a, I have a number of different accounts. So one of my accounts is kernel Linux, which is my quote unquote public community account, the one that everybody knows, the one I invite everyone to message me on and I try to maintain a presence there as best I can. But you know, like everyone else, I have to get up and go to work in the morning. And when I'm at work, I can't be constantly bombarded with or addressing community concerns and people that reach out and want to ask questions and, and, and that kind of thing. But I still want to use Element. I still want to use the same tool that I believe is the best communication tool out there today, right? And so I have a work account also hosted by EMS, and so they handle that for me. And that's that's what I use at work. And so at work, I, it's just like anybody else. If you signed into Slack or Teams or Discord or whatever, you have the tool that you sign in when you go to work. I have the same tool. It just so happens that my tool has all of the same buttons and all of the same things in all of the same places. Oh, by the way, when there is a little bit of overlap, when there is that particular community member that him and him or her and I are working on a project or working on something, and now it's time for me to go to work, but I want to keep in touch with that person. I want to make sure to be able to answer their questions or I want to be able to get back to that person. Now I just invite my work account into the into that chat and I can continue seamlessly to have that conversation. I have another account that is really for close friends and family, and that's the one that I'm on at night, you know, when I'm shut off from everything with the rest of the world. But guess what? That account is still watching the most critical channels from AltaSpeed. And so if an alert comes in and, hey, this server went down or whatever, all of those things are delivered into specific matrix chats in our work server. And I can monitor all of those from my personal account because every uh, every chat that is, is super important has a number of my personal accounts in there. Um, and so there's a number of different ways, Vladimir, that you can that that you can accomplish this if you want to. And so what I would encourage you to do if you decide to go that route is uh, if you are if you if you set things up on EMS, I would just invite your EMS account uh, into all of the chats that you are using with the Linux Delta server and and go that route. Now, I will tell you this. You ask the question, what would happen if Linux Delta servers go offline? Um, I can't promise you that a community-run server, we're never going to have a problem. In fact, one of the things when we launched it a year ago, I specifically, the first room we created was Noah's booth. And it was an informal way to just hang out because I was missing hanging out with people itself. And it did, it accomplished exactly what I set out to accomplish, which was I was able to connect with all the people I usually would just hang out with at Southeast Linux Fest. But I said from day one, hey, this is really, I want to see what this can do. And it might burn catastrophically down, but I want to see what Matrix can do. And as it turns out, it was so unbelievably successful, so unbelievably stable, so unbelievably useful that I switched to it almost overnight, full time. And now I can't stop telling you the good things about Matrix. That server will never go offline for a couple of reasons. First of all, all of the bots and integration and automation that we've done, we host our work account at uh, on EMS. But all of the little side projects that I do, or even the stuff that we rely on at AltaSpeed, is all running on the on Linux Delta server. And the reason for that is is because that's my server. That's where I'm using all of my stuff. It's why my main account, Kernel Linux LinuxDelta.com, is hosted on the Linux Delta server. Things like my mother. Her account is hosted on LinuxDelta.com. So quite literally, the only communication I have uh, with with my own mom most of the time is through that server. And so we have put a tremendous amount of time, effort, and money ensuring that that server is there for the long haul. I will run that Linux Delta server until we reach a point to where people aren't 
all on massive home servers because I the, the the way that Matrix is designed ultimately is for everyone to be on their own home server. And that's why when those monolithic clients come out eventually someday, the idea will be you won't share a home server with more than just a few people. Until that time, public home servers are not popular enough. We actually need more of them. And so if you're interested in running a public home server, you should consider doing so. But we will continue to pump money and time and effort and whatever it takes to bolster that server and to make sure it's the best experience that we can provide on the Matrix ecosystem because I so strongly believe that people should have the ability to communicate with each other without being restricted. And I think that Matrix offers one of the only communication platforms I've ever seen that truly allows you to do that. Part of it is because I can I can I can without equivocation answer questions like this. Hey, you signed up for an account on this server. Now what? What can you do? Are you hosed? No, absolutely not. There's tools to do it today. There's a roundabout way that I personally use and find it to be even better than the account migration because I don't necessarily want every chat I've ever had on one account to be on the other one, but there's certainly a lot of them that I want the backlog and, and, and so on and so forth. And so I have the opportunity to do that. But most importantly, this is part of the spec. It's part of the plan is to have account portability. So someday it's coming to where if you wanted to split out onto your own home server, you'll just click the button and then that account will move over and everybody else will know where to find you. But I give you my word, that server is not going anywhere anytime soon. If anything, uh, we're just going to keep, we're just going to keep building it up so that we can accommodate more users, more, and you know, as people upload stuff and that kind of deal, we, have to accommodate the storage, but not going anywhere anytime soon. Our fourth email comes in from Lucas. Lucas writes in and says, write, writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I know a little bit about you and AltaSpeed Technologies since you joined the Linux Action Show. You've described the company and all of the good, bad, interesting, boring, and easy and complicated stuff so many times that I've decided to try to give it a go as well. I have a few paying fairly happy customers with Linux on the back end or with a webinar to look after. You've been a great inspiration and your devices were mostly always accurate. Uh, as much as I enjoy my daily job, there's nothing like owning your own thing. By the way, I love the new logo. Take care and have fun. Thanks, Lucas. So in 2019, AltaSpeed celebrated its 10th anniversary. And what we set out to do in 2009 was to, to, to empower people with the attitude and knowledge and skills necessary to leverage technology to its full potential with utilizing open source technology. And that is, I think, now more important than ever because we have reached a point where things are slowly moving towards a centralized fashion. And so what I enjoy about my job, what I enjoy about, as you put it, owning your own thing, is the ability to set the direction and the vision to go out there and say, okay, you want to use technology. You bought a computer. You bought a smartphone. You bought a server. You bought, you know, you bought stuff and you want to use that to better your business. So, or whatever the thing is that you're trying to do, how can we as an IT company help you connect with that goal? Sometimes the answer to that is you want to go a cloud route. And so we let you do your thing. We're not in the business of telling you how to run your business. Other times though, oftentimes though, what we find is when you sit down with somebody and you really come alongside that person and take their concerns seriously and care about what it is they're trying to do and their mission becomes your mission and now you look at yourself as I'm the technology wing of that business. That's what you brought me in here to do. What's the best possible way we can do that? 
oftentimes when I can walk in with a client and sit down with them and say, okay, if you value, do you care about privacy? Do you care about security? Do you care about reliability? Then here are the tools that we know will deliver those things day in and day out. And here is the larger ecosystem surrounding and supporting those tools and why they have an established track track history that's going to empower you to do those things. More often than not, client looks at me in the face, well, I didn't know that. Thank you for that. Thank you for teaching me that, right? And on the flip side, I get a lot of people, particularly new clients, they're very hesitant, right? Very, very hesitant. Like, why is he telling me that? How do you make money? What's your angle? What's the catch, right? Well, there is no catch. You're going to pay me the hourly fee to be here to help you set this stuff up. Well, how do you make money after that? If you call, if you need help, I will help you do that. But I'm going to give you all of the information so that you can manage it yourselves. And so we start talking to people and explaining that and people don't know what to do with that information. We don't do yearly contracts. We do everything month to month. Why? Because we we know we're going to add enough value into a business by the end of the month that there's not a reason to lock a client into a one-year, three-year, five-year, ten-year contract. It doesn't make any sense. There's They're not going to leave because we are going to provide more value before the end of the month than they, are, than they actually purchase, right? You have to to make the numbers work. Otherwise, they would just pay hourly. And and so when customers see that, they're put off by it at first, like, what's the catch? Why does it work like that? But then after 30 days, they figure it out. Oh, okay, because that's why, because we're happier here, because it works better here. And so, Lucas, if you're able to do that in your neck of the woods, then uh, then my hat's off to you and I, you have my full support. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, the, the, the little bit of success that I've been able to have in this corner of the world helps you. Uh, our last email comes in and is in response, actually, to our main topic this hour. It comes in from Charlie, and Charlie writes in responding to Audacity, which we'll get to in a little bit. And he says, my view on this, we have Russian corporations that are recording data off of people throughout the world using surveillance tracking, monitor, and telemetry, sending data to governments, surveilling groups, and enforcers, along with creating their own self-hosted database. Why are corporations in foreign governments and countries allowed to hijack an open source community? Why are they allowed to hijack projects and programs, buying the project's leadership or blackmail? Um, they're, they're deplatforming and using other shady methods, which sells out the community to become just the same as some multinational corporation. I think that there are some dangerous things coming from Audacity, he writes. Paywall Audacity, so you will need a monthly payment to see their most recent source code. Monitoring of what you're recording, and if it's deemed unauthorized, it will auto-scrub it. Or cripple features because you have the wrong idea or a viewpoint. It's finally time to reevaluate Linux and the Linux ecosystem and open source FOSS and reconsider if this is in our best interest. So, Charlie, what I would tell you is, and we're going to address this as, as the program rolls on, the answer to this is FOSS. It's not the time to run away from FOSS, to run... Time to run further towards FOSS, and we're going to see why the free and open source ecosystem is actually going to fix this and why, indeed, it's already started down the process of fixing this. Our pick of the week this week is Inkbox. Inkbox OS is a complete operating system and a replacement for your Kobo e-reader devices. It currently runs on the GlowTouch, the mini models. It's built around QT 5.15.2, and the main features are EPUB rendering. So, 
It also supports something what they're calling Cobox, which is X11 support, allowing you to run X apps natively onto your ebook reader. Isn't this fantastic? Inbox OS is built around a core concept, the idea of security. And so the root file system gets verified every time you boot via OpenSSL and has a public key embedded into the kernel so you know that that operating system has integrity. Each back, each package also has a signature. So if somehow the package or the signature of the package is not valid, the device simply refuses to boot or it will display a warning. We'll have a link for you in the show notes on Inbox, but I actually had, I was not real up to date on the, on the, on the Kobo uh, devices. And so I found one on Amazon. I started looking into this. I've always had this dream that we would have all of the reference material, all of the PDFs and manuals and installation manuals and stuff like that and deployment guides on little e-readers that we would send out with text. But I know I wasn't going to buy into any of the cloud-based stuff and I really wasn't happy with anything that Amazon had to offer. And so I'd kind of just put it aside. The fact that I can get a fully open source operating system on a tablet that costs $169 has 35 4.5 star reviews from Amazon speaks pleasantly to the idea that, hey, an ebook reader, it might be a place where it's not too difficult for Linux to come in and provide an equal, equivalent, or better operating system than what shipped with the device. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Again, github.com slash Kobo dash inkbox. It's an operating alternative operating system for your e-reader tablet, completely open source, and allows you to run a couple of apps. Our gadget of the week this week is the Rain Design 137M Tower Vertical Laptop Stand. So this came to me because we were uh, we were searching for – we had a client, and they wanted to go all Thunderbolt docks. I had extolled the virtues of Thunderbolt docks. I've been using them personally, both at my house, in my office, and around the various different places that I spend a lot of time. Uh, for a while, just having a Thunderbolt dock, and I've switched from having a desktop to just taking my laptop. So I take my work laptop, plug it, dock it with a Thunderbolt cable. Everything comes up on the on the docking system, 27-inch display, nice keyboard, nice mouse, good speakers, printer, the whole nine yards, right? So I'm explaining this to a client that said, we want to roll that out. We want to do that. What is the best way to do that? That's So I start researching and start looking at uh, the different devices. And I've spoke numerous times that my favorite Thunderbolt dock today is the Lenovo Thunderbolt dock. Works with every laptop I've tried, MacBooks, HP, Lenovo ThinkPads, uh, Dell XPS. I just It works on Everything, just a fantastic little device. Um, and the other thing is because I think it's Amazon that's using them, uh, they cycle through those products every two to four years. And so there's a ton of them on eBay. And so you can pick them up for under $100 if you're willing to go buy the power supply and the Thunderbolt cable separately, which any geek can probably do. Anyway, on to the Rain Design 137. So I have a, I have a dock I like. The P2719H uh, Dell display is a professional series display, has a, a regular IEC power cord, supports DisplayPort, HDMI, uh, VGA, all of the appropriate connectors, and it's bezel-less, so it looks really sharp. So we've been using those monitors in a lot of in a lot of deployments, but the one remaining piece that I didn't quite have nailed down was this a stand to put the laptop. Now, some of you out there are crazy and you use your little 13-inch laptop display as a secondary display. That would drive me absolutely nuts. First of all, the height is off from where my actual monitor is. Second of all, it's smaller and it's just everything about it would drive me nuts. If I'm going to dock my laptop, I want it to essentially become a desktop. I want to forget that I'm working off of a laptop and I want to think that I've sat down 
at a desktop. So that was the goal I set out with. So I ordered a number of different little laptop stands that you can set your laptop in, and they were okay. A lot of them had like a two-piece clamshell design, and then there's two little set screws that you open or close the little clamshell until it gets to the to the, the the width that you want. And when it gets there, then what you do is you tighten the screws down and that sets it for the laptop. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, there's a temptation to set it to whatever your laptop is and then other laptops don't fit. Worse yet, though, over time, those screws began to strip. They're made out of soft metal. And as a laptop goes in and out, in and out, in and out, it widens those that little clamshell design and eventually the screws strip out and then the thing doesn't hold the laptop anymore laptop falls down trash right wasn't real happy with that now i've used rain design before they they make a regular laptop um i don't want to call it an elevator but it's a little stand that you can set your laptop up and so if you're using it with an external keyboard and mouse works really well to get the laptop monitor up so your neck isn't strained looking down. I've been very happy with those, but again, don't want the laptop open and really don't want to eat up that much desktop real estate. I really want the laptop to be behind the monitor and out of sight, out of mind, the whole nine yards. We'll enter the Rain Design 137M Tower Vertical Laptop Stand. So this is an exceptionally high quality uh, device, uh, all one piece design, so nothing to strip out, nothing to slide together. They do tackle the idea of different laptop sizes in the form of little pads. Now, I'll say this. The little pads have um, adhesive on it, so it's not like you can switch between the pads for different laptops very easily. You kind of have to pick what you're going to to do. I will tell you this, though. The one, the pads that come on the laptop stand by default, we put an X1 Carbon, a T470, a Dell XPS, a Dell Precision, a MacBook Pro, uh, an HP ProBook, and there's one other one. I think it was an Asus laptop. Uh, we had a number of different laptops that we had tried inside of this Rain Design vertical laptop stand. And all of them worked flawlessly. Yes, some of them didn't weren't held up all the way. They leaned against one side or the other. But it was in no way about to fall out. The little rubber edges were more than enough to keep the laptop in a position. So it literally did make the laptop become a desktop. It's a very aesthetically pleasing device. It it's uh, it's brushed aluminum, so it looks really nice. It fits a wide variety of laptops. Again, we did everything from a chunky HP ProBook down uh, to the X1 Carbon, and all of them, they all fit inside of there, and they all looked decent, and I didn't have any concerns of them falling out. That one piece means that there's nothing to strip. There's no screws to adjust, none of that. And the other thing is it's super heavy, which is nice. All of the other uh, dock stands that I had tried slid around all over the desk. This one stays in one place. And then they've got those rubber paddings all around to protect the laptop while it sits in the, in the stand. So it's the Rain Design 137M Tower Vertical Laptop Stand. You can get it on Amazon. It's about 40 bucks. I'll have a link for you in the show notes available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Jim Whitehurst is leaving just 14 months into his role. So Jim Whitehurst is stepping down as IBM's president, but he is remaining on staff as a senior advisor to the CEO and other executives. Now, this has a lot of people scratching their heads and wondering what in the world is going on at Red Hat and are they risking their $34 billion investment purchase of, uh, excuse me, IBM's $34 billion purchase 
of Red Hat. And the question to that might be, yeah, this is kind of weird, right? So oftentimes after a deal this magnitude, there is usually some sort of an agreement as to how long key executives are going to stay on. Because obviously, if one company buys out another company, there's a temptation for everyone to just say, okay, I quit because now it's not this company anymore, right? And Jim was instrumental in that. Not only did he stay on, he was instrumental in saying, no, calm down. IBM is giving Red Hat breathing room. They're going to let us operate as a separate entity. They're going to let us continue to operate in the way that we know how to do it. IBM has this tried and true old way of doing things, top-down approach, right? Red Hat, very much the opposite. Here's a phone, here's a laptop, go do your job from anywhere, meet with your team, get the work done, be a part of the open source community, move the technology needle forward, okay? And that that has been amazing. He had, Jim Whitehurst built so much credibility in the FOSS community for the work that he did with Red Hat. And in his book, he talks about coming from Delta Airlines and having this belief of, well, this is the way you run a company, right? It's top-down. I'm in charge. I tell you what to do. You do it. And then if you don't like that, there's the door. That's how this works, right? No, that's not how this works. Anybody at the company is allowed to make suggestions or make changes to the company. Oftentimes that's handled at the individual team level. And that got to Jim. Eventually that got to him. And eventually he started to see that is a better way to run a company. And lo and behold, he watched that company pass one billion dollars and grew it until it sold for 34 billion dollars to ibm in 2019 okay so that's the kind of leadership that red hat had under jim whitehurst that's the kind of leadership that ibm purchased when they purchased red hat and that's the kind of leadership that they were counting on jim to follow through with red hat to make this deal a success and now 14 months into this he's leaving and so there are a lot of us that are on the outside going What are you going to do now, IBM? Jim is not going to be an easy person to replace. Not only is it, I mean, not only, it's not like there are a ton of high level executives that can do the job of, of, of what a president of a company the size of IBM or CEO the size of a company of Red Hat does, but you also have to have the credibility so that the people that work at the company believe what the leadership is saying and believe the vision that they're buying into. Leaving so soon makes everybody kind of question, was it a cultural difference? Was it something that the two companies just weren't compatible on? Obviously, as you might expect, there isn't a lot of information floating around. In fact, they went to some reasonable lengths to try to bear, to try to minimize how much this was going to blow up in the news cycle. Broke over the 4th of July and people were gone. Outside of that, it didn't really, I mean, they may have limited the damage, but it, IBM stock still fell like 5%, right? So this is not good. This is not, nobody sees this as a good move. So it'll be interesting to see what IBM does. It'll be interesting to see how they respond. It'll be more interesting to see over time, if there is a cultural incompatibility, it's not going to take long to suss that out. I will take this opportunity to shoot down again that, IBM had nothing to do with CentOS. I saw one form after the other, one chat after the other, one email after the other of somebody saying, well, this is the kind of stuff. See, IBM took over, they killed CentOS, now they're getting rid of it. Like, no, two entirely separate issues, uh, not related at all. And so, so far as we know, so far as anybody has communicated, IBM has continued to allow Red Hat to operate the way that they have always operated. They've continued to allow Red Hat to be Red Hat. We don't know why Jim Whitehurst stepped away from his role at IBM 
all we can say is it's almost definitively not a good sign. If you want IBM to become a more open source, uh, friendly ecosystem to the community, then you want people like Jim Whitehurst in IBM, not people like Jim Whitehurst stepping away from IBM. Google is forcing app bundles. So Google is now forcing new apps to use app bundles instead of APKs starting in August. It's called the Play Asset Delivery and it replaces OBB. Now, you, as always, you can join the interactive Jitsi room by going to geeklab.ninja, signing up for an account there. Atypical Colonel joins us. He was the one that stumbled into the story. So I'm going to bring him on. What do you, what can you tell me about this? Right. So basically what Google is forcing is in August, any new applications going into the Play Store will have to use a different packaging format called App Bundles. This does a few things. One, it replaces um, OBB, which is a, a way for an APK to download assets um, with the Play Asset Delivery. There are some advantages from the user's point of view. Um, play asset delivery is better compression, dynamic delivery. So that means when the app updates, instead of having to download a new asset bundle, it can only deliver what's changed since the last time that user updated the app. This also re results in smaller app sizes. It's also... Use utilizing something called the play feature delivery. Basically, um, the an app when you install it, it installs the it pulls down from Google Play the bare minimum to get up and running, and then as you're using the app, it downloads the rest of the app in the background. The so from a user point of view, there are actually some benefits to this. The big downside is that it requires the developers of an app to go about packaging and distributing and et cetera a completely different way. So it puts the work basically on the developers. In addition, the app bundles utilize Google Play features that are exclusive to Google Play. This has the effect of if a developer wants to distribute their app in the Google Play Store and, say, F-Droid or Amazon or, you know, the coming support for, you know, Windows. They now have to develop and maintain two separate versions of their app. So this um, fundamentally really breaks the entire – a lot of people – Go to Android and use Android because it is the closest thing that we have to an open source Linux alternative on the mobile platform, right? And, and this fundamentally breaks in a big way that benefit. No longer are you able to install F-Droid on Sailfish OS or install, uh, you know, Android Runner for, uh, for your, your competing mobile platform and then be able to run those Android apps. Now you're, now you are more tied to Google services. Not really. So AVBs are what developers uh, are basically a bundle of all the different things that are uploaded into the Google Play services as you, as an app developer. And what AVB is, is a delivery mechanism to dynamically deliver the correct content for your device. It synthesizes an APK at install time and uses that to install on your system. You can also, if the developer wants to, or if you request it, 
um, through various mechanisms. So those are not all detailed just yet. Um, you can request it to synthesize you a classical APK or a device uh, optimized APK for you to download without the Google Play Store. Um, it is not replacing the APK format. It is not replacing the APK system that is built into Android. It is essentially trying to make it so that installing applications aren't as painful for people in more bandwidth-constrained areas. What do you think that does to the third-party uh, either app stores or third-party operating systems that heavily rely on Android emulation to get a usable market share because they can't, nobody's going to develop app for whatever that platform is. I don't think it actually has that much impact there. So some of the um, notable platforms that uh, um, emulate uh, Android or, or implement Android user space in their own Linux-based platforms um, either already say, you know, go grab Google Play services or F-Droid or whatever. And again, the native um, application um, package format is still the APK format. It isn't changing to anything else. The app bundle is really a Google Play thing for being able to optimize things that are released to Google Play Store. If a developer wishes to put it somewhere else, they totally can. It doesn't really change that part. Um, I actually do expect that Google will release the specification and structure of the ABB format because they really haven't ever not done that. Like when OBB was introduced and when OBEXs were introduced and all the other um, binary variants and binary formats and transmission formats and extensions and whatevers, whenever they were introduced over the years, uh, it took a little time, but Google eventually like released all of that out for um, the community to understand and use because it is not in Google's or anyone's interest to keep that um, to themselves. Like, who cares if a delivery format, you know, like it's just a delivery format. It's not even the installation format. It's synthesized in an APK before you install it. So it's it's really not a big deal. Like the, the real meat and potatoes of this is that as part of ABB, there's now a standardized way to request extra resources to be fetched as needed on the fly rather than the developer having to come up with a different way for their apps by hand. And that makes it more secure and more reliable because, like, I've played games on my Android phone, and occasionally, you know, the app developer has to come, whatever scheme the app developer came up with doesn't necessarily work. Or, like, it downloads too much data or not enough data or whatever. Like, this simplifies this problem domain and makes it much simpler to deliver a better user experience. I don't the, see a problem the, with it. Um, I actually do. Um, I don't have a counterpoint here. So most app developers will release in the Google Play Store, which is great for a lot of users. However, the a lot there are people out there, especially the alternative platforms, that don't have the Google Play Store installed. And so for people who are using creative methods to get um, applications from the Google Play Store and then sideload them, the dynamic delivery becomes a problem. So atypical, the problem with that is that's an unauthorized way of installing the application in the first place. 
Well, but hold on a second. Correct. So hold on. So, but what we're saying, well, but then develop, what we're, what we're beginning, what we're beginning to do then is we're starting to devalue the the the, the premise of applications like Eftroid. Are we not marketplaces like Eftroid? No, 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 no. We have never devalued that. The point is, if you uh, the problem with what atypical is saying is that that's that path is not valid for someone who ex- intends. For an application to be exclusively released on the Google Play Store, right? So the the problem is though, never, right? Like, the right, problem, and the problem is the problem however, with that. No, no, no. There is no if ends and buts. If a developer is releasing it purely on the Google Play Store, this is the same thing with the Mac App Store. This is the same thing with the right, but uh, you know, with the App there, Store. However, but here's here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting. Here's what. But the 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 issue is if you're talking about the difference between Google Play and iOS, then I would understand because. I agree with you both that at the end of the day, the, the, if if you're just trying to deliver the best possible experience Google can deliver to their customers, so be it. But my question is, and what concerns me a little bit here is, what if Google Play isn't the end-all be-all? Because we get people all the time that say, I want to de-Googleify my life. Now, if that's the goal, doesn't this make that more difficult because it's more because there's additional onus on the developer to publish to these third-party stores? Not really, because as part of building an Android app, you already have to synthesize the APK. Okay. Right? You're, so you're you just pull it. That. So you could pull yeah. the APK off of what you're building with these app bundles and then publish. So atypical. Do you see yeah, any problem with that? that? Yeah, so that still raises the issue of there are developers, even some open source developers, that I have seen when somebody goes on their GitHub and says, hey, can we, you know, this is an open source project, can we get this in Eftroid? Or can we get a, you know, a build that we can pull directly off GitHub or GitLab? They go, oh, that the developer goes, that's too much work, just go get it from Google Play. And if this becomes the standard and developers start taking advantage of those features in Google Play to, you know, make it a better experience for the people in Google Play, there is still the developer then still has to go to Google Play, extract that APK and release it either on GitHub or in Asteroid or wherever else. They are using those dynamic delivery features. Okay, so let me ask you this. Is it possible for somebody who isn't the developer to use these app bundles and go and so let's say the person reaches out and says, Hey, Joe, I want your app and I'm not on Google Play. So can you release it to Afterite? And Joe, the developer says, No, not going to do that. Uh, just go get it from Google Play. Okay. Can I then go download the app bundle, extract the APK and push it to Afterite? Or does it have to be done by the developer? If they if they are using play feature develop delivery, no, because the APK that gets generated is not going to have all of the assets required. It's going to be the bare minimum, and it's going to rely on the Google Play Store being there to get the rest of the app. So, Neil, does that not seem to a certain extent like this is like I can understand what you're saying when you say that if Google is setting out to deliver a better experience for a Google customer, this is one way that they can indeed uh, execute on that. And I agree with that part of it. But doesn't this come at a small expense of Oh, uh, actually, I shouldn't say small expense. Doesn't it come at the expense of the flexibility of, hey, we always had these APKs. And at the end of the day, no matter what Google was or wasn't doing, you can always sideload the APK. Now that model is broken, is it not? 
that bottle was already broken because if an application relied on Google Play services, it was already consuming it before, right? Like, okay. so the thing is, but this is worse than well, the problem. Yeah, well, the premise, no. The pre- no, no, hold on, that's hold on. Let me. Yes, it is true. Here it is. The way that uh, that the way that people use quote unquote alternative stores is they either reimplement the Google APIs or they provide shims to do something else. The Android bundle format does not stop you from doing a similar thing. However, if they are tied into, if they are expecting Google service delivery to actually run their application, that's a different question. When we're talking about delivering, you know, you're, you're bringing up open source applications. Open source applications are forkable. They're buildable by yourself. On an F-Droid, you're not going to find a proprietary app on there. This is not a problem for open source apps. For open source apps, someone can build and upload into F-Droid wherever the heck they want. Okay. You're, so, but- if, if you're trying, if you're trying to take apps, that proprietary apps made by proprietary studios, developers, whatever, and they're putting in the Google Play Store and they're using ABB plus the streaming thing. By the way, ABB doesn't imply the the asset streaming download feature. That is not actually mandatory. That's a different aspect of it. But if they're using that feature, that is because they already have built their application to use Google Play Services APIs, Google Play Services, and are optimized around delivering through Google Play Services. I, I can respect what you're saying. And I, I understand what you're saying. I just, I get to the point where I, I see this and I have to say to myself, this seems like we're going a, a, a bad direction. And I, I'm, I, I'm hopeful that at the end of the day that this does deliver a better experience to, to Google customers. And I hope they can start to slow that black eye that, that we seem to always get when it comes to iOS because Google doesn't have the control over their ecosystem the way that Apple does. But it concerns me a little bit because I, I'll tell you what. My bank app and many other people's bank apps and a lot of large com- companies, they're not paying attention to the third-party market stores. The only reason we have access to a lot of those apps on places like F-Droid is because, the, because they were forced to publish it in a way that we were able to extract it and, and put it out. And I get that that maybe doesn't work in every single scenario, but this seems like it's a, it's a step in the direction to make it worse. So uh, – We'll see, I guess, what ends up happening and, and how it all shakes out, but it, it makes me nervous. I appreciate both of you for participating in the discussion. Again, you can join by coming to uh, geeklab.ninja. So the large story of the week is Audacity. Audacity is in the news. Audacity is on Reddit. Audacity is in the mailing list. Audacity is in the chat. 3.0.3 uh, RC1 has been released. And on the positive side, they've added a binary for Linux via app image. Now, uh, they're switching to a 64-bit version on Windows, and they're dropping support for Windows XP. Yay. They've improved the default uh, spectrograph colors. They fixed a lot of the user interface display issues on high DPI displays on Linux. They fixed some of the font size scalings in incorrectly. And also, they updated the privacy policy. Now, when they updated the privacy policy, they changed from an applica- a desktop application with no functionality online really whatsoever. I mean, it's an audio editor. And Audacity has never really had a need to be online or do anything online or phone home or any of the things. And they have updated their pi- privacy policy to say that they're going to begin collecting a certain number of pieces of information. Now, the flags, the, the, the compilation flags, when you compile the software, it really amounts to three different flags. One is the network flag, which is off by default. So by default, no networking features are built regardless of what any other flag further down the stack is set to. And that's important to note. Under that, though, is the century reporting. 
And that is defaulted to on, and it enables error reporting to Sentry.io. It includes the OS name. It includes the version. It includes the message timestamp. It includes an event unique identifier. It includes the Audacity version, and then it includes the info about the error. And this is would be almost identical to every other application that has the little would you want to send a crash report to X organization. The next is crash reports, and that also is defaulted to on, and it sends crash report data to Breakpad. The third is the update check, also defaulted to on, and requests data from audacityteam.org about what the latest release is. So the information as we understand it that they are storing in the century reporting is, is, is IP address. For example, they are going to be stored for what we're told is an identifiable way for about a day, and then it's going to be hashed and stored on their servers for up to a year. Additionally, they now have a message that says that Audacity should not be used by anyone under the age of 13. This is, in my opinion, one of the most alarming things, because if you're not actually worried about collecting data and thus worried about getting yourself in trouble by collecting data for people under the age of 13 that can't consent, why do you not want people under the age of 13 to use your software? Number one. And number two, why would you change your privacy policy? Why would you start collecting this information now? This comes just off just a little bit, just a month or so, a few months after Muse acquires Audacity and starts releasing it. One of the first things they do is make this change to their privacy policy, make this changes to the reporting systems. They've come back out and said, it's bad wording. We're going to revise it. But it might be too late because the community has already said, you know what? I don't know what you're doing with our audio editor. Worked fine for years, and now all of a sudden you've gone and screwed it up. And so there's now a fork of Audacity, and it is cleverly titled github.com slash temporary dash audacity slash audacity, which is essentially audacity with all, all without the telemetrics. Now, I'll be the first person to say, having dug into this a little bit, I can't find anything in this particular version that violates any privacies. But it seems clear to me that they are headed in a, in a concerning direction. But you'll notice a pattern in free and open source software. And it's one of the reasons I really like the GPL and one of the reasons I'm kind of lukewarm on stuff like MIT where it's basically do whatever you want. If a company wants to come along and add value, fund, produce the product, that's fine. That works perfectly in line with open source. If a company wants to look to add value in the way of added support or an additional tier that you can pay for, like a pro version or something like that, that comes with some extra whiz bang features or, or, or some extra lacquer around it, some white label, that kind of stuff completely supported as well. Red Hat does this quite frequently, right? They find a project that's doing good work. They hand the guy a paycheck and say, keep doing what you're doing. By the way, slap a Red Hat sticker on it. And actually, even the Red Hat sticker is keep your own sticker, just understand that you're under our sticker, right? Perfectly in line with open source. Matrix. I've been a part of the Matrix community, and I've watched people do cool stuff in Matrix and then get hired by companies that are doing cool stuff in Matrix. But when a company tries to take over and introduce something that isn't within the project's best interest, it simply doesn't work. And it's incompatible not only with the software license. But it's incompatible with the way that open source software is developed because the license makes it far too easy for people to cut their losses and run. And that's a mistake that we've watched made over and over and over again. So it surprises me to see that this would happen again with Audacity. Oracle started screwing up OpenOffice, came out with LibreOffice. I can't remember the last time I heard somebody talk about OpenOffice. OwnCloud, 
It started going down a bad direction. Frank says, nope, not what I started OwnCloud for. Founds NextCloud. I can't remember the last time we've talked about OwnCloud. Plex wanted an open source version, so we come out with MB. MB goes proprietary. Now they're no better than Plex. So what happens? We go to Jellyfin. Can't remember the last time we talked about MB. Freenode is the place, the landing place for an open source discussion. L- l- they take a bad direction. Libera chat pops up almost overnight. The number of people in Freenode the week after that were less than the amount of people in the Geek Lab alone. Everybody just moved over to Libera chat and it had a different name. Same, same network, same people, same stuff, just under a different banner, right? So Audacity, or whatever you want to call it, is a fantastic open source project that's done fantastic open source work. And the free and open source license is going to prevent any company from doing any real significant harm. Because at the end of the day, they're just going to pick it up. They're going to move it over to a new umbrella. Might get a new fancy logo. Might get a new fancy website. Maybe it'll even go undergo some improvements. And at the end of the day... They'll be able to go back to whatever Muse, whatever good things Muse does take and pull that out and put it back into the open source version of Audacity. We'll see if Muse can turn this around. I don't think that they can. I think that ship has sailed. I think this was probably a mistake on their part. But Audacity continues to live on. Thank you, open source. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Show, me at Kernel Linux. We record the show every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll be back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Have a good week.